take a look at this. If you stare at it for a minute, I think you can make out what that is. Can, can you see what that is? This is, it's, an, it's a map. It's an, it's an actual map. This is real. This is a very early map of North and South America. I believe this is from the year 1550. So it's very early. Here's another one for, from over 100 years later. This is from 1685. Um, I find this one very interesting, but I mean, you see how distorted things are? Like there, and Canada's kind of a mess. My favorite part about this map, um, right out here where we live, you know what this map is labeled? If I zoom in on it, you can see it. This is tract of land full of wild bulls. That's a home sweet home. Right, that guy, he ought to see what lives here now. I'm just telling you. You think that was bad. Here is one from even later. Just, I mean, look at Northeast Canada. It's just a mess. Out here, there's just blank. I don't know what they thought was going on in between the, the Rockies out here. Isn't that crazy? You can kind of see it. What's this big blob of land over here? I put a different one on here so you, just because you can see it better. See, you know what this is right here? This is, this is a myth is what it is. It's called the Island of California. It was this mythical island paradise. And even after exploration proved like it's not there, it continued to show up on, on maps because the myth sort of persisted. Why? Why are these maps, what do they all have in common, for one thing? They all look like they were drawn by like first graders, right? Why? Why do they look so distorted? Why does like the, the this and, and this and all that, why? Why does it look so goofy? Is it because people back then were dumb? Is that why? No. People actually aren't getting smarter. Watch the news. Um, also, pretty much everyone agreed by that time, because of exploration, the world was spherical, and somehow the jury's back out on that one. I don't know. Um, they look like this because the people who were drawing and charting these maps... They were drawing, trying to draw something that was vast. Like North America is huge. It's immense. And they had very little information. They had some information about the outsides, the coasts. Incomplete information. And they were trying to draw the full picture of the whole thing. And so very understandably, all the maps come out all jacked up. They're kind of funny to look at now, but it's what they had to go on. You know, this reminds me of when you and I try to consider God and all that God is. It's not that we don't have any information about God. We do. Just like people could live on this continent and they could, could know about it without knowing all of it, without having the complete picture God has let us know what he is like by giving us his word, by especially giving us his son, who's the exact 
likeness. You want to know what God is like? Study Jesus. But we just don't know all there is to know about God, do we? God's a big subject. He's infinitely bigger than North America. To understand everything about God, we would need infinite capacity to understand an infinite God, which we just don't have. And so sometimes we have to be okay with not understanding. We have to to be okay with incomplete information. And you know, I'm not even sure, or actually, I'm pretty convinced that even when we meet the Lord, when we are in eternity, we still won't understand all there is to know about God. We will spend, those of us who are believers, those of us who are redeemed, we will spend all of eternity getting to know God better and better and better and exploring and mining the depths of all that God is. For now, there's a lot of stuff we just don't know. He's told us everything we need to know about him, but he hasn't always told us everything we'd like to know. And I tell you that because we started a a couple of weeks ago a section of the book of Romans that's that's tough. Like I said last week, there's no low-hanging fruit in these passages. You've got to stretch to learn from these things. It's, uh, it's difficult. It's good. We can learn from it. But here's, here's what it's doing here, just to, to remind you or to catch you up. Paul has just gotten done teaching us about some great promises that we have if we are Christians, which means if we believe that what Jesus did at the cross, he did to pay everything that needs to be paid for your eternal life. He he paid the the price of the redemption of me, of you. If that's true about you, about me, about us, and Paul has promised us there is nothing that will separate us from the love of God that we have through Christ Jesus. We've been adopted, and we are sure to be fully adopted, taken home. It's coming. It's sure. We've been called. We've been chosen. We've been adopted. Isn't that great? Well, there were probably, Paul anticipates, some people in his original audience that would raise this question, what about Israel? Because if we read the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament, we can read in there and find Israel was promised by God. I will, you'll always have a special place with me. Like, didn't say it this way, but like nothing can separate my love from Israel. You've been called Israel. Israel's been chosen. Israel was adopted. Isn't that great? But by this time, as Paul explains the gospel, where Paul started this book by saying, there's only one way that God can point his power at you in a way where God's power rescues you instead of God's power condemning you. There's only one way, and that's the gospel. That's faith in Jesus Christ. And so here's the conundrum as it pertains to Israel. If that's true, people will only be rescued by the gospel, and Israel's kind of over here rejecting the gospel, 
if these Jews, Paul's fellow Jews who die, aren't rescued by God, but they're condemned by God, then what do we make of those promises God made to Israel? They're adopted. They're called. They're loved. They're chosen by God. Has God just pulled the rug out from under Israel and said, you know, I know I made those promises to you, but I'm going to give those promises to somebody else. I changed my mind. If that's the case, and it's not, but if that's the case, then how do we know God won't pull that rug out from under us and say, I know, I promise nothing could ever separate my love from you, but I'm going to give that promise to somebody else who'll come, across, who'll come along later. That's the conundrum. That's why Paul says, I'm going to take three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, and answer this question, what about Israel? Last week, the previous paragraph, Paul, uh, Paul said it was always God's plan, or it was, I'll say it this way, it was never God's plan to save eternally every individual mem- member of the family of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob which became Israel. God chose some. He didn't choose others. He said God chose from Abraham's kids. He chose Isaac. Didn't choose Ishmael. From Isaac's sons, twin boys, he chose Jacob. Didn't choose Esau. It was never God's plan to choose everyone. And we can go through Israel's history. There were always unbelieving people within Israel. True Israel, Paul says, are people who are from the right family, genetically related to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but who believe. But who believe. And God has plenty of time keep all of his promises to Israel. We haven't gotten there yet, but, but he will today. Because Paul has begun to say some tough things. Because Paul has begin, he's begun to discuss God's election, God's predestination, God choosing this person to believe and therefore one day be saved. And he did not choose this person. Paul knows people like us are going to have some questions, some objections to that. I mean, what do you think? Be honest. It's okay to be honest. What do you think about this idea? God chooses some from the before the foundations of the world. He chose to create some people he absolutely knew would believe and be saved, and he did not give the same choice to others. What do you think about that? I'll be honest, I don't like to think about that. I'm not crazy about that. I'll tell you, it's really hard to scrub it out of the Bible. I mean, it's, it's here. We're going to read a passage where Paul's going to say, God created some people to go to heaven. He created other people knowing they wouldn't. It's in there. It's what the words mean. How's that make you feel? Paul's going to take a break and answer two objections to that today. Here they are. These are two objections to this idea of God electing or choosing some to to eternal life and not 
others. Objection number one, that's not, it's not fair. It's unjust. And objection number two, how can God, if that's true, if God chose this person and he knew that person is going to believe, but he didn't give that same choice to someone else, how can God still find fault in this other person when God could have chose to make him believe? Does that make sense? It's a reasonable argument. Paul knows it is. That's why he's going to bring it up. Those are the two things we want to talk about today from this passage. Romans chapter 9, we're going to read, oh, it's actually verses 14 through 23. There's a typo on the top of the screen. I'll have to get on my secretary about that. For those of you who don't know, I don't have a secretary. When I say that, I just don't want to take accountability for my own errors. So just keeping you up to speed on my jokes. Um, Romans 9, 14 through 23, beginning in verse 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, God has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. That's objection number one. Objection number two starts next, verse 19. Next you will say to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist God's will? On the contrary, verse 20 says, who are you, O oh man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why'd you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump of clay one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, what if God endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And, he, and what if he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy, which he pre prepared beforehand for glory? There's our passage. It's the whole story of two objections to God choosing some but not others. Objection one is this. If election is true, doesn't that make God unfair? What shall we say then? Isn't this unjust? Isn't this unfair? Paul answers the question, absolutely not. No way. May it never be. Can't be true. But why isn't that true? That's what Paul's going to talk to us about in the next uh, several verses. Verses 15 through 18 is why election does not mean that God is unfair. I just want to have all the, the text up there for you on the screen because I know this is a lot uh, of information to kind of digest. Okay, verse 15, Paul says this. First, he's already said God choosing 
I'm going to make this person overwhelm them by my call, force them to believe they are going to believe in, our, in Jesus Christ. They're going to be saved. And he does not choose this other person the same way. That does not make God unfair. Why? Paul says, well, it's just like, it's always been this way. It's just like God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. How does that answer the question? I think it helps to know the story of where that came from. Do you know the story of when God said this? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. I'll give you a hint. You know the story of the golden calf? In the book of Exodus, God spoke the Ten Commandments to the whole nation of Israel. Everyone heard it. They all said, we get it. We'll do what you say. Moses, you go talk to God, and we'll do everything God tells us. But they already heard the Ten Commandments. Moses goes up the hill. Uh, God literally writes uh, the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. And by the time Charlton Heston gets back down the hill, right? By the time Moses gets back down the mountain, what are the people doing? They have created a golden, it's a bull, really. That's why I like this picture. It's a, a, they've, they've created the statue of a bull and they're worshiping it. The first two commandments are what? Don't have any other gods but me. And whatever you do, don't make statues that you use to worship. And by the time Moses gets down the hill, they're all, all the people who said, we will do whatever God says. They're already breaking the first two commandments among others. And I'll leave that story for a different day. Now at that moment, what did all of those people deserve from God? At that moment, all of those people who were worshiping a false god in a graven image, what did they deserve from God? They deserved death. They deserved to be wiped out. And there's this discussion between God and Moses. And it's in that discussion, Moses asked God, show me your glory. Like, I want to see all of you. Remember that? That's in the same conversation. God says, okay, I'll, I'll, I'm going to cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. I'm going to proclaim my name, Yahweh the Lord. I'm going to say my name in your presence. And then here's what he said. Here's all my goodness and my name, who I am. I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. What does that have to do with today's passage? In that golden calf story, you know what God does with Israel? He kills 3,000 of them. You okay with that? Wiped them out. 3,000 people. But he had mercy and compassion on many more. You know why? Because God's merciful and compassionate. You see, this is not, we, we hear that and we think God is mean and terrible and awful. No, he's not. Because they all deserved the death. Only 3,000 suffered. And God rescued and saved and was compassionate. 
to other people who were just as guilty. God didn't come down and find the best Israelites and save them. They were all guilty. God said, I'm going to choose to be merciful to some who are just as guilty as the others. That's, it's the same with us. If Paul is correct in the first three chapters of the book of Romans, it's been a long time since we read him, but if Paul is correct in what he wrote in those first three chapters of Romans, how many of us deserve God's full wrath? How many? Every single one of us. We are all without excuse. We should all be doomed. That God doesn't choose to save all of us is not the stunning thing. The stunner is that God does choose to save some. We say when we ask questions like this, wait a minute, that's, I don't think that's fair. I want God to be fair. No, you don't. Fair would mean every single one of us destroyed. That's fair. You want to know it wasn't fair? That Jesus died when it should have been you. That's unfair to him. We don't want God to be fair. We want God to be lenient. We want God to be permissive. We want God to not care. But those things aren't God. He is just, which is a good thing. He's righteous, which is a good thing. And he cares, which is a good thing. So in verse 16, Paul says, so it doesn't depend on, your Bible might say something like the one who runs or the one who wills. It doesn't depend on how much people want it or on how hard people work to get it. What's it? God's mercy and compassion. God's mercy, mercy and companion does not depend on how much I want God to be merciful. It doesn't depend on how hard I work to exert myself and do religious things and try to be good so that God will take it easy on me. That's not how someone gets God's mercy and compassion. Mercy means we deserve judgment. And God withholds it with some. Who? Just on the one God decides to show mercy to. Now, I want to pause and tell you, nothing Paul says negates or contradicts what he already said when he explained the gospel. The fact that God does choose some before I created the world, I chose this person's going to believe and get my compassion. The, the fact that that is true, and guys, it's just true. Do you know the story of the Apostle Paul? How did the Apostle Paul become, come to be a Christian? Was he studying the scriptures and decide, you know what, I think Jesus is Lord. Is that how Paul became a Christian? No. God chose to make Paul a Christian. I don't know how else you can read the story and come to any other explanation. I don't know if everyone who ever believes God chose in this way, but I do know he chose some. Paul does not speak to how much freedom we have 
to make the choice to believe, but some people at least had no choice. You know, Jesus chose 12 guys to be his disciples. Isn't that true? You know what that means? He necessarily didn't choose everyone else that was running around. God does choose some. Now, that does not negate this. Paul told us everyone who believes will not experience God's wrath. That is true. Do you want to not get wrath, but get mercy? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. God promises. That is true. Paul's just dealing with this, well, it's not fair if you chose some. And that guy, he didn't believe. And if you would have chosen him, he would have believed. That's not fair. Paul says, yes, it is. Verses 17 and 18. Paul says, I want to remind you of another story. To explain this, God doing this, choosing some, not choosing others. God even hardening some people's heart, making sure they don't believe. God does for a good reason and not a bad one. Paul says, you remember the story of Pharaoh? Pharaoh was king of Egypt during the Exodus. Here's what God said about Pharaoh one time. For this very purpose, I have raised you up, Pharaoh. Why? So that I might demonstrate my power in and over you. And so my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So here's what God did. God decided he was going to take, create this guy to become the most powerful man on earth, the Pharaoh of Egypt. And God was going to make sure he didn't repent and believe in the God of Israel. That sounds terrible. Why would a good God do that? He tells us, because I wanted to show all my power over you so that everyone around could see there is something way powerful than any human power. And lots of people could come to believe through what God did with this one guy. And you know, it's easy to see in Pharaoh's example God's still doing stuff like that. I can't tell you what he's doing. We don't know. He's too big. But when someone does not repent, does not come to faith, does not believe, God is still working things out so that his name is proclaimed in all the earth. It's still somehow for a good reason. So, so far... Objection number one. Wait a minute, that's not fair. Paul has said, of course it's fair. Fair would be everyone gets destroyed and God has decided to have mercy on some people he chose and even those people that God does not choose, he does that to glorify himself, which is supposed to be our purpose. It's supposed to be what we all want. That's objection one. Objection number two starts in verse 19. If our salvation is up to God, how can God still condemn people when he is the one who made the choice to not save them? Or I'll say this maybe a little differently, even though I'm the one that wrote that. God could have chosen this person. He didn't. 
that person doesn't believe. Isn't it God's fault that person didn't believe? Because all God would have had to do was choose him. He would have believed. So how can God now punish that guy when it's God's fault because God didn't choose him? Make sense? That's what Paul says, all right, here's what you're going to say next. Why does God still find fault for who has ever resisted his will? All God had to do is choose that guy. He would have believed. Then you couldn't punish him. So this whole thing is your fault. Now, Paul's already answered this argument in the book of Romans. I'm going to, I'm going to, we're going to walk through what Paul says today. But before he does, I want to remind you what Paul has already said. And that's this. People are going to be in eternal condemnation forever and ever and ever. Why? Why will they be there? No one will be in eternal punishment because they were not elect, because they were not chosen. That's not the reason anyone will be in hell. Paul told us why people will be in hell. Why is it? It's not even because they didn't believe. Put your rocks down. Let me explain. People are going to be in hell forever and ever because they're not righteous. Only the righteous will shine like the stars forever. Daniel told us a long time ago. You want to get into heaven? You got to be righteous. Now, Paul spent three chapters in the book of Romans telling us why, how many of us are actually righteous based on our behavior. Zero, bupkis, none of us, right? We're all going to stand before God and based on our own behavior, we're without excuse, Paul said. Not only we're so far gone, not only can we not meet God's standards of righteousness, we can't even meet our own. Paul explained that. Paul said in, chapters, in chapter one, every single person, you want to know why we're going to be in hell? Because we, we denied the truth and we exchanged, or we suppressed the truth, and we exchanged that truth for a lie. Do you remember that? It's been a long time since we studied that. Paul said, everyone, this is Romans 1, every single person has enough information to know there had to be a God who created all this. Has to be. Almost nobody doesn't actually believe in God. It's when I shared the story of um, Francis Collins, maybe the world's leading geneticist. You know why he became a believer? He mapped the human genome and said, this is way too complex. This could not have happened by accident. Dr. Thomas Borain was an atheist and a research chemist. But he kept working on him. How could, how could all of this, I put this chemical with this chemical, they react the same way every stinking time. This, this world, this universe is not a chaotic place. It's ordered. It's law. How can this have come from nothing? He became a believer. That was my advisor in seminary. He's the dean of the seminary I went to. We have enough evidence to know there's a God out there. Once we know that, we should look to see what he wants, what he expects. And the, the bad secret about humanity, no one does. You know there's a God out there, and so do I. You know what our problem is? We don't care. I don't want to waste my life being all churchy and serving God. Why? Because I want to serve me. I want to do what I want. 
what makes me feel good. That is suppressing the truth and accepting the lie. That my life will be better served and spent serving me. You know what terrible things you have to do to deserve to go to hell? Nothing. Just keep doing what you're doing. That's what Paul says. The fact that we ask a question like this proves Paul's point from Romans 1, 2, and 3. Because that's his real answer. Romans 1, 2, and 3 is his answer of why it's not God's fault that people will be in hell. We are responsible for our own choices. That's his answer that he already gave. But look at what he says today. He says, all right, I, I know... Uh, or we ask this question, how can God still find fault with someone when he could have chosen to make them a better person and make them a believer? Paul says, before I answer that, I want you to answer a question for me. Who are you to ask that of God? Do you see, track with me here, do you see that if just the fact of us asking a question like that proves that Paul was right about us in Romans 1, 2, and 3. Romans 1, 2, and 3 are all about, I don't care what God wants. I want to be the boss of me. So then we get to this section and we say, wait a minute, God. You could have chosen me to make me better. None of this is fair. You see, we're proving Paul's point. We think life is about me. You have to, if, you're, if you expect me to believe in you, you have to play by my rules of fairness and what I think is right. And I think you should have made me better. You can't blame me because this whole thing is about me. Paul says, before you ask the question, consider this one. Who are you to tell the God of the universe that he ain't fair? And then he brings up, there's a, a couple places in Isaiah where Isaiah, or God through Isaiah talks about how God is like the potter who creates stuff on the wheel from clay, and we are the things God makes, right? Does what is molded turn around and say to the potter, why have you have made me like this? How ridiculous is this? Here's the picture. This guy makes something on the little wheel. It's a lot of fun. I took the class in college. I'm terrible at it, by the way. But he makes the thing right? And he sets it aside and it comes out of the kiln and says, why did you make me like this? Why did you make me a cup when I could have been a beautiful vase? Would would they ever say that? No. Doesn't the potter have the right to make whatever he wants out of that lump of clay that he desires to make? Yeah. Has the potter the right to make from the same lump of clay one vessel for special use and another for ordinary, view, or what, ordinary use? What's the answer? Yes. So then Paul goes on to say, so doesn't the God of the universe have the right, if he wants to, to make someone like he made Pharaoh knowing he would have no, no choice and no chance? If God wants to, if it's just that simple, couldn't God do it if he wanted And if God wants to make someone that he knows will believe and be saved, if it's just that simple, wouldn't that be fair and okay if God wants to do that? Yes. Now we want to ask, but why would a good God make someone knowing they won't believe? 
I don't know. I don't know. But I know I can't shake my fist at God and tell him he ain't fair. This is where I have to be okay with not being, not being able to understand everything. Do we really think we can understand everything God is doing? And if we can't understand everything God is doing, we sure can't understand all of his logic and reasoning behind everything that he's doing that we also can't understand. And Paul leaves us the last two verses. This tells us where this information leaves us. Verse 22. But what if, what if God, willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make known his power, what if he has endured with much patience the objects of wrath prepared for destruction? What if God has created some people he knows will not believe so that he can pour out his wrath because that's part of the reason he made all of this because he didn't have any reason unless he allowed sin to demonstrate part of who he is, which is wrath and justice. What if he was very patient, waiting for those people to believe they never did, and he's going to pour out his destruction on them and check this out. And what if, what if God is willing to make known the wealth of his glory on the objects of mercy that he has prepared beforehand for glory? Who or what, what's the objects of mercy in verse 23 that God has prepared beforehand for glory? What is that? If you've believed in Jesus, that's you. There is no other way that you're going to find eternal life, a pleasing experience, than believing in Jesus. If you have, Paul says you are an object of mercy. God has created you for eternal life. But this is important. Check this out as we end here. I am convinced we will see God take the objects of his wrath and throw them into destruction someday. That's terrifying. That's terrifying. And you know what, you know what we will know? You and I, if we're believers and we're not pushed over the edge in eternal destruction, do you know what we will know about us and them? We were made from the same lump of clay. As I see people I knew, as I see people I never knew, cast into eternal destruction, I will know I am no better than them. I am from the same lump of clay. God didn't, God isn't giving me eternal life because I'm better than them. He made us from the same dirt. And you know what we will do when we see that and realize that about us and about them? We will know the wealth of his glory. We will know the wealth and the riches of his grace and of his mercy because forever and ever we will be saved of no goodness in ourselves just because of the unbelievable mercy and grace of God. This is a tough word. 
this is tough. It's tough to stomach. It's tough to understand. But again, it's why we go verse by verse through books so we can't skip the tough parts. I, when I decided to preach through Romans, I wasn't like, oh man, I can't wait to get to chapter 9. That is going to be fun. So what do we learn from this? First, God is creator. He has every right to make some people knowing they will sin and never come to faith. If that's how God does it, he has every right to do it. Now, it maybe it's true that those people can freely, absolutely believe. Everyone can believe. We all have the opportunity to believe. But some won't. However God does it, he is free to do it, and he's right when he does it. Second, those who suffer eternal conscious torment in hell. It's real. Jesus talked more about it than anyone else in the Bible. They will do so because they're not righteous. That's why. It's not God's fault. It's their fault. And third, we're just reminded that God in his mercy has chosen to save many. And we will spend all of eternity praising him for what was not fair, for what was mercy and grace. Pray with me and we'll close. Father God, this is a tough word, but we thank you for preserving it for us in your word. God, there are so many that right now think they are good enough to deserve heaven or they just don't think about it or they try to do religious things to make up for the bad things they've done. And they, like us, need rescued by the God of the universe. Very soon, you're going to teach us through Paul that they won't hear without a preacher, without someone to tell them, God, make us a people who lets others know how they can be rescued, saved, because what we all need is mercy. Lord Jesus, you said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy more than sacrifice. God, help us to depend on your mercy and, and beg and plead with others to accept the mercy that only comes through Christ Jesus. We love you, Lord. Thank you for loving us through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us? I will kneel in the dust at the foot of the cross where mercy paid for me. Where the wrath I deserve, it is gone, it is past, your blood has
us to know from that passage is that we were cut from the same lump of clay as everyone else who, who has ever lived. And we can either be an object of God's wrath or an object of God's mercy. And if that's the only truth we are supposed to know, then may, then may we fall before the cross and beg for the mercy that only comes there. Love you guys. See you next week.